0: My name is John Doran, and I write about music. I've been hosting a video show called The British Masters for Noisy for a few years now. I usually speak to artists who feature strongly in my record collection. We've had everyone, from Marky Smith to Jimmy Page, from Liam Gallagher to Viv Albertine, from Tricky to Goldie. We've just launched our fourth series, and we've finally got round to putting the audio up from the interviews here. We'll be putting all the new episodes up, plus a few classics, here and there. Today, I'm talking to Paul Simonon, originally known as the bass player in The Clash. A lifelong artist and style obsessive, Paul was one of the key architects of the aesthetics of punk, and his obsession with dub and reggae helped broaden the sound of The Clash out gloriously. I'm speaking to him today in Damon Albans' West London studio, where they are rehearsing for their upcoming tour as one half of The Good, The Bad and The Queen. Paul Simonon, welcome to British
1: Masters. Thank you. What, British Masters, what is that? Is it like a well, chess thing? There's two common threads. The first is that the are British. And the second is
0: that the people who feature in my record collection. we we'll just speak to them about music. Okay. Now, I guess this raises one thing straight away, which is do you even identify as British?
1: Well, I don't really identify with anything, really. I sort of always see myself as just a person that lives on this planet. But in terms of location, I guess, yeah, you could say I'm English, even though my origins are English and European. In the beginning, when my dad was around, we we traveled a lot as a family because he was always looking for work. So as a kid, I went to a lot of different schools. My stepfather, he won a scholarship to study music. So we went to uh, Siena and also I was fortunate because I didn't have to go to school there. Partly because I refused to, because of my age group, I'd have to wear a, a blue smock with a big ribbon here. I said, Mum, I, I, I can't do this because it's like we're from Brixton. And she understood, so she sort of said, OK, well, I'll teach you at home. But her teaching at home was only really like about a few hours, and the rest of the time I was sort of roaming the streets, of Roma or Siena, hanging out with the other uh, truants. Have
0: you always been very particular about how you dress?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the simple thing is is that if you get hit by a bus, you don't want to be found wearing a pair of flares, do you? (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds a bit silly, but... um, No, I I guess the environments I've grown up in, it's sort of, that seemed quite an important element. I grew up in in the South London area of Brixton with the families, the, the sons and daughters of the Windrush. And I noticed all the characters on the street corners. But then also that evolved much many years later into sort of the the skinhead thing where sort of style was quite important. Even though it's sort of minimistic, because it wasn't flamboyant as such. But then I guess the flamboyancy came about with a two-tone suit.
0: Well, talking of which, because you know, obviously the Clash have had very distinctive periods. If we're in military or kind of
1: quasi, it, and it was it down down to finance. Uh, in the yeah. beginning, uh, we didn't have uh, uh, Malcolm McLaren and, Ma- and Vivian Westwood's shop to rely on, whereas Pistols had that. They were dressed was because of my experience working down Portobello as a kid, I was savvy with second-hand clothes. And, and in some ways, it's fortunate because it was very easy at that period in the 76, when straight leg trousers were everywhere in second-hand stores because everybody wanted to wear flares. So to get a suit very similar to this was dead easy. And all you had to do is just sort of dress it up, put some studs in it. And I guess from my art college aspect, it's like you could Jackson Pollock a shirt uh, and it was, you know, it sort of do it yourself. I was thinking on the way over, like Paul
0: Simonon strikes me nowadays as someone who's an artist who does a bit of playing bass on the side. I wondered if you agreed with that assessment.
1: You know what? Ever since I was a little kid, I've always done what I wanted to do. I've always done stuff on my own terms. People that don't know me, they say, uh, well, what do you, what do you do? I said, uh, I, I do whatever I like. It wasn't easy to have that attitude in the beginning because it meant you would go hungry. But, um, but now I'm sort of able to... I've got a, a very, very small financial cushion from The Clash that allows me to sort of paint. I wanted to ask you about art as it relates to kind
0: of your history as a musician. What I'm really curious to know is, could punk even have happened if it wasn't for... People like yourself who were kind of deeply embedded as artists, or the art school tradition. Jamie Reid, Linda Sterling in Manchester, bands like Wire and Gang of Four have got very much like an art school
1: yeah. in. Well, crass th- yeah. Well, the thing is, is, that it's interesting you say it because like I, I went to art college because I wanted to be a painter. Mick Jones went to art college because so he thought that's where you went to get a group together. So there's always been that tradition. And in, what, in some ways, I would say that Bernard Rhodes was quite responsible for The Clash. Mick had this band, London SS, and, uh, and Bernie said, Mick, get rid of your band, get a band with this bloke, which was me. He liked the idea of mixing musicians with non-musicians. Mm. And it was also Bernie that suggested to the Pistols that John be their singer. Uh, in the same guise of musicians and non-musicians. But Mick, because of his knowledge of music history, knew about this bloke who was in The Beatles, called Stuart Sutcliffe. And he said, no, he's he's a painter like you. And he played bass, sort of, like you. (laughs) So I related to that.
0: I was watching the video to Medicine Show by Big Audio Dynamite on YouTube, and obviously Mick's in it. So yeah, yeah. You, you and You and Joe have got starring roles in it as well, haven't
1: you? Yeah, well, that was, that was sort of... Uh, Mick invited us and we thought, you know, it's the it's show of, like, you know, we're mates again.
0: I take it there was no talk of getting the clash back together?
1: Well, there was talk about it, but I, I, I had no interest in, in, in it at all from day one. There's this sort of rock and roll hall of fame, which is... a Joke, really. The thing is, is that I, I didn't really want anything to do. I'm not into these award things and ceremonies and all that. Uh, and I went because Joe was dead, and and his family were going to be there. I think I had to put that my feelings about it aside. But Joe was keen on doing it, and uh, and we had sort of almost down to a day or a few days before he died. Uh, we had this ongoing fax conversation, and my point was that I'm I'm not I don't want anything to do with it. And he said, "Well, try it. You might like it, or, or we might get Manny to play the bass." I said, "Go ahead," but what I want to put across to you is that for people, if they're going to see the Clash reform, I'd rather it be in some club somewhere rather than some corporate businessing where where a seat costs a thousand pounds each. That was my last message to him.
0: It's really interesting that John Lydon crops up in the same video right at the end with a machine gun. Yeah. And this made me think was the Sex Pistols clash rivalry maybe talked up a little bit in the press?
1: Well, yeah, initially, because it's, I guess, it's sort of like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles situation. You know, I was good friends with Steve and Paul and Sid, and I knew John, but John always had his little crew around him so he didn't really get to know him but we, we had a lot of things in common, I guess Bernie Rhodes for, for example and also my background and I guess his background and our sort of in, being influenced by Jamaican music because of the environment you grow up in. The good thing about the Pistol, well lots of good things, about, uh, uh, too many things that are great about the Pistols but one of the things that was good it galvanised Strummer into thinking looking at his band the 101's and really thinking I've got to move on. And so when Bernie Rose turned up, said, right, I'm putting this band that's going to rival the Pistols, are you into it? And Joe said, yeah, maybe, I'm not really sure. And, and then Bernie said, well, I'll give you 48 hours to decide, and then I'll call you back. By the evening, it had not even been 24 hours, and Bernie said, right, I'm phoning you now, because I can't be bothered to wait for the other 24 hours. Are you in? And Joe said, yeah, I'm in.
0: When was the last time you were in a situation where you thought, I mean, for real, like, I'm going to die or I'm not going to get out of this
1: without serious injury. Uh, yeah, we we was in Jamaica and we were doing some recording there with Mikey Dredd, who we'd all previously worked with. Unbeknownst to us, like, a month before the Rolling Stones were in there and they were splashing money around to everybody. So there's these white blokes from England, London in our studio so they must have loads of money too. And um, because they weren't getting any money, because there was no money to splash around, they thought either we were holding back or else Mikey was. So it just got a bit tense and, and Mikey said, we got to go because the gunmen are on the way. And uh, when he said that, because he's a local fella, you know, he means, s- see you've got to leave. What about when
0: you go to a place where there's a different situation happening? Because I know the class used to play like Belfast, didn't they?
1: Yeah, that actually, that's pretty scary too. But the reason we went to Belfast is because nobody would go there. And of course, you know, when you're young, you sort of go, oh, no one's going to tell us what to do. And so uh, we went there really to play music, really. There was a band, I can't remember what they're called, but there was a band that was there, a local band, that were assassinated. No bands would perform in, in Belfast, and so it was sort of dying and somebody said, to well, why don't you play in Belfast? And I said, yeah, okay, let's go. One section of people thought, oh, it's us glamorizing, oh, we're terrorists, or we're this, or... We're this. It was nothing, it was about, yeah, we're here. Why don't you come over and play here? We've performed here, it's fine. Just come over and do a show.
0: We're talking today because the nameless supergroup that a less well-researched journalist might call the good, the bad, and the queen
1: but actually doesn't have a name, it's back together again. Well, it sort of does have a name by default somehow. But the the supergroup, it's a bit of a joke, really, because it's it's sort of... Supergroup seems to sort of like measure out the idea that... Right, we'll get this person, and we'll choose that person, and if we get that person, we can do that, and then it'll be like this. But it didn't really happen like that with this situation. It was very organic and natural... Can I ask you about the archaic spelling of the title? It's sort of like that sort of nostalgia thing that people have, that idea of this sort of merry England, whereas we we know it's not actually very merry. People have this sort of romanticised idea of England, we want England how it was before. I mean, how it was before, I can tell you, it was a bit grim and it's not particularly pleasant now. People have this nostalgia which is sentimental and not based in any reality, you know. They think England should be like sort of duck ponds with the vicar standing outside the church and people playing cricket on the green. I think this album is more about banging the drum for uh, how we've moved on, hopefully, from that dreamy thought of of Merry England. In the same way like maybe with the whole Brexit thing, some ways, I think maybe we should just start again. Reinstigate the idea of a united Europe, but allowing countries to have some control over their cultural makeup of that country rather than being dictated by somewhere that's not sympathetic. And make a contribution. I mean, without people coming into this country and bringing their experiences and culture, Especially say for the West Indians, for example, you wouldn't have had the specials, then there'd be elements of the class that wouldn't have existed.
0: What actually happened to the bass guitar
1: off the cover of London Calling? Uh, I've actually got it, and uh, and the only reason that I've still got it is because when we was leaving the stage, I noticed Joe walking off with one half of it. And I sort of thought, oh, then that's mine. And I said, actually, that belongs to me. And grabbed right. it back and just put it in a, in a box, and, I, and I've still got it, so.
0: Can I ask you about the incident with the MV Esperanza? How you got to become an undercover chef on an?
1: I wasn't the chef. A, a mate of mine, he, he works for Greenpeace, and I've been pestering him for years to partake in one of their actions. And in the end, he said, look, I've been thinking about it. And um, of all people, I think you actually, you'd actually you probably be quite suitable in so far as you're used to living in a small, confined area, such as like a tour bus or whatever, and travelling. And you seem to know how to get on with people. Because I didn't have any skill or such. On, I had to take the lowest job, which was sort of assistant to the chef. Uh, so it's sort of all hands on deck, I, I guess you would say. Uh, you, didn't, I,
0: you didn't go as... Paul Simonon, did you? Well, I just went as Paul. So when you actually got on the boat, what was the
1: mission? What was, the, sorry, the action? What was? Well, we were supposed to intercept the Ericsson, which was uh, an oil structure, which we did eventually. But it was difficult because they turned off their tracking system, so it's hard to locate them. So we was uh, at sea for quite a few months. So what happened when you actually found the rig or the? Uh, well, we had the Danish Navy stalking us at the time and we were expecting them to storm the ship, which they did the previous year. So we got up really early, about five in the morning, and climbed up it, and our point was, um, could you show us what your plans are if there's an oil spill? And they said, uh, well, no, you can't see them, because obviously they didn't have them. And if you don't get off, you're going to be arrested for piracy. And so we said, well, whatever. Anyway, we got arrested, and that was that.
0: You got locked up for a while, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we got locked up, but that was all right. It's like, no, I mean, it wasn't like I was locked up for 10 years or anything crazy like that. We got taken to the prison in in Greenland, and uh, they put us, when we arrived, the whole prison was, it was like those in those films where they banged the tin cups against the, like yelling, fuck you, get out of Greenpeace, we hate you. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, really aggressive. And uh, this guy came up to me and said, well, I want to fight you. And I said what about and i I said to him so what do you miss he he said oh I, i miss my girlfriend i said yeah me too and then suddenly it's all like it's all fine well
0: thanks very much okay thanks that was me john doran talking to a british musician who has changed the course of popular culture this is the british masters podcast Watch the visual versions of the episodes on YouTube by searching Noisy British Masters and subscribe here to get new episodes of the audio version. Godspeed, friends, and remember, listen to Electric Wizard.